Welcome to Dental Dilemmas, brought to you by the ADA Council on Ethics, Bylaws, and Judicial Affairs, and I am your host, Alex Mellion. Today, using the ADA's Code of Ethics and Professional Conduct, we will analyze one of the Council's most popular ethical moments. Today's question is posed by Dr. Gunter Jonke in a previously published article from October of 2018. I have a colleague who has been practicing general dentistry for seven years and prides herself on her quality of treatment. In addition, she continues to improve her knowledge and technique by taking frequent continuing education classes at the local component dental society. She and her hygienist have been noticing over the past year that they performed several emergency treatments on patients of another long practicing dentist while he was away on vacation. The two dentists are quite friendly as they see each other regularly. My colleague and her hygienist began to discuss some of the questionable treatment the other dentist has been performing on his older patients. The most recent one was a pin buildup amalgam that appeared to be in the pulp, causing much discomfort. My colleague informed the patient of the diagnosis and started root canal. Surprisingly, she noticed that the caries remained under the buildup too. The, the patient thanked my colleague for accommodating her and taking away her pain. Before leaving, the patient stated that she saw the other dentist every six months and asked why this happened and whether my colleague had an opinion about the other dentist's treatment. At the end of the day, both the hygienist and my colleague knew that the other dentist's technical skills, as well as treatment quality, have been deteriorating for quite some time. There were other cases too, such as leftover root tips causing gingival swelling, moderate to severe periodontal disease never mentioned to patients, and open margins on several crowns. What are my colleagues' ethical obligations? Dr. Jonke, thank you so much for being with us here today. Um, before we jump into the article, um, tell me a little bit about yourself and where you practice. Well, thanks, Alex, uh, for the opportunity and uh, appreciate the time and, uh, and effort behind the scenes to talk about this Ethical Moment article. Uh, I'm an oral surgeon um, in a private group practice out on Long Island, New York. Uh, Long Island's about uh, 120 miles long and about 20 miles wide from New York City, and we're about 60 miles from New York City. So uh, we have five partners and uh, we're traditionally um, oral surgery group practice. So uh, in addition, uh, we just got um, hired, believe it or not, uh, for a day a week teaching at the Stony Brook uh, School of Medicine, uh, teaching uh, third and fourth years uh, oral surgery uh, techniques, extractions and infections. So I just started that a few weeks ago. So. Uh, mostly private practice, but a day a week in in, uh, in the School of Dental Medicine. Oh, wonderful. I, I remember as a student going through oral surgery rotation and always appreciated the, the time that our instructors would take. So that's wonderful. And I, I'm sure the students really appreciate and are very thankful for that. So thank you. Um, also, um, how did you select dentistry and then oral surgery as your career path? Um, you know, I was good with my hands. Uh, always a model building and we always had model trains growing up we didn't have any computers as you can imagine back in the day so uh so dentistry uh, actually back in high school was uh, was a career path for me i had a couple of good mentors I used to volunteer over the summers and they kind of guided me 
And uh, uh, so that's how I selected dentistry. And then uh, just prior to the senior year, um, every school had externships, right? You get to pick where you want to go. And uh, I wound up in New Orleans at the mm. uh, Louisiana State University School of Dentistry for an oral surgery externship um, in August, believe it or not. <laughs> and, uh, and I was selected along with another uh, dental student, uh, Chris Kahn out of uh, New Jersey, believe it or not. And uh, the residents uh, treated me as one of their own. And uh, after that month, I decided that oral surgery was my, uh, gonna be my career. And uh, after all these years, some almost 35 years later, we're still friends with my co-resident back in 1987. So small world, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, yeah, those, those friendships are absolutely lifelong. Um, so today we're, we're talking about um, justifiable criticism and its ethical considerations. I know you wrote a number of articles um, when you're on CBJ and a number of ethical moments, but what inspired you to write this article specifically? Uh, Alex, as you know all too well, uh, these ethical moment articles that are publicized in JADA uh, all come from real-life situations, right? They're all true stories. They start from somewhere. They're not make-believe. And uh, as a specialist, whether you're oral surgery or endo or perio, you get to see a lot of clinical dentistry. And so... Uh, this was an, a natural, uh, simple article for me to uh, educate uh, the membership about uh, justifiable criticism. You know, it's a main issue that we all we see. And uh, even from general dentistry, you get to see patients that leave other practices and, uh, and you get to see the clinical dentistry from other dentists. So um, I thought it was a... Uh, a an important article to publicize uh, for new dentists, even older dentists uh, in our membership. So that's where that yeah, came from. I, I couldn't agree more. I feel this is that classic ethics scenario and there's a number of layers to it. And uh, we're going to touch on some of them right now. Um, I know I've been in practice about nine years or so now, and this is converse, a conversation I've definitely had. And um, I appreciate you going through the scenarios. So first off, how do you walk through the walk the line of not disparaging the previous dentist, but still let the patient know that the work needs to be redone? And how do you feel it's best handled if the dentist is a partner or a good friend of yours or someone you've had a long working relationship with? Yeah, that's a great question, Alex. Uh, it's quite a thin line, um, but ultimately uh, the responsibility that you have when you see any patient is uh, to that patient directly. What, what you see and uh, what you diagnose and what you need to tell them what, what the issues are. So, um, you know, I, I bring them into the consult room and uh, we review an x-ray, we do a clinical exam. And then importantly, at least in my ways, uh, I take them out of the chair and I say, come next to me here, let me show you on our, on our screen here what we see, what are the issues? what is good, what is bad, what, what do we need to correct? And I bring them in very close to me and we show them on the screen and we point out, this is, this is excellent, this maybe needs some issues. And, and so it doesn't take me from, from the you know, doctor patient looking down on them, I look at them as almost a relative, you know? 
And, and, and I think they appreciate that more when I look at them eye to eye and I educate them. It's all about education. See this bone level, implant, thread exposure, whatever the case may be. I look at them and, and uh, almost as a colleague, certainly as a patient, but I treat them with respect and, and I don't raise a voice. I don't say, oh my God, what happened here? What were you thinking? But I educate them. And I think the patients for the most part appreciate the time and effort you take when you take them out of the chair and they're right next to you. So uh, that's kind of how I treat that, uh, just treat them what I see on an x-ray and a clinical exam. If they're a good friend of mine, the referring dentist, that's pretty easy. I think that's an easy one because they're a good friend. They may be a good referral to me over the years. They trust me, I trust them. And, and that's an easy phone call for me to make. We have a patient, listen, uh, look, look at this tooth as an open contact, whatever the case may be. And that's an easy phone call for me to make to a friend, to an old uh, referral dentist for me. So uh, I don't mind that. And they realize we have a relationship. And what do we want? The best for our patients. So they understand it. They'll bring the patient in and they'll make that correction. No, absolutely. I think that, that courtesy call is so important. And, and just having that strong foundation before um, the patient even sits down makes all the difference. Um, yes. Yes. No, it, absolutely. It's that it's that phone call that you make after the consultation. And many times, uh, if you know it in advance, listen, uh, one of your patients is coming in. What's going on? What are the issues? And so now there's a dialogue between the dentist, the patient, and me. And that reassures the patient like. On that, that same thought, how do you handle the situation if the previous dentist that or the previous treating dentist is retired or um, has passed away or is just not able to be contact. I know, contacted. I know sometimes now that um, dentists are a lot more mobile than they maybe used to be or maybe not as accessible at times. Where do you go from there if you if you aren't able to make that courtesy phone call or what have you done in the past in those situations? So usually uh, when, when we see dentists either retiring, typically it's the situation and they, they wind up uh, either selling their practice or their records there's always someone following their their patients and uh so it would be um important for us to reach out to who's taking over their cases what's more of an issue alex is when the new dentist is taking over the practice or many times it can be an associate dentist that stays for a period of time and moves on then it becomes more of a challenge because that dentist has moved on and now we don't have a dentist of record any longer. So that becomes more of an issue to see who will take over the case uh, when a patient comes to see us. If the patient just, I know like you had said, I, I totally agree and I think that's a wonderful approach to sit the patient down and educate them. If they just flat out ask what your, what, what your opinion is of the previous dentist or what you think, or if you've seen other scenarios like this, one is, is work that you think there may be an issue with how do you how do you answer that question yeah once <laughs> once again we we have relationships and, and i'm fortunate to be around for for many 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 years and we tend to know most people in our community uh but there are new dentists that come uh that we don't know as well 
And once again, we're upfront with uh, uh, veracity and, and being fair to the penis, dentist, uh, to the patient rather, that say, listen, we, we don't know him as well as we would like. We would like to know him. Let me make a fellow call, telephone call and reach out and see what the situation is. Let me educate your dentist on what this particular issue is. So we would make the effort to reach out and, uh, and, and track him down uh, and explain the situation, refer x-rays out along with our clinical examination notes and wind up getting back to the patient explaining this is what we need to do. Along those lines again, if um, as a specialist, I know you may see if, if the patient doesn't want to go back to the treating dentist. Um, yes. And how do you go about that? And how um, do you still give the, the treating dentist a courtesy call and let them know? Or do you just let the, the patient kind of dictate what they want to do and if they want you to call or not? And I know these are all kind of similar questions around the same line, but I feel like these scenarios can be so nuanced that it's, it's helpful to have some different approaches. Yes, Alex. You know, on occasion, the patient is adamant. Listen, I'm not going back for whatever reason. Don't call my dentist. I'm not going back. But somehow... If you have your good relationship with your, your patient, and I, and I believe, I think I do, uh, you try to convince them that it's in their best interest that we reach out to the original referring dentist, explain the situation, what our issue is, and that uh, I will have a consultation with them and we'll try to make it the right way. Whether it's an open margin, whether the crown is not the way it looks or the shade is too dark, whatever the case may be, my obligation is to make it right for them. And, uh, but there are some patients that say, no, I'm not going back. And I'm, and I'll explain to them, listen, if we refer you to someone else, they're going to need to start all over again. And when we start all over again, it financially, it may be, uh, more money or usually it's all about financials, right? Uh, right. nowadays. And, and somehow, I will tell you, 9 out of 10, we're able to get that patient back, maybe a little bit reluctantly, but ultimately to uh, make the case right for the patient. Whether it's a redo crown or whatever the case may be, everyone at the end of the day gets the case completed to the patient's satisfaction. At that moment, the patient may decide, I'm not going back, and they may go to someone else at that point. But we try to make appease everybody to get the patient's satisfaction completely done um, despite their wishes originally. No, I, and like we, you've said multiple times, I think that relationship is really what makes the difference and being able to pick up the phone and um, have the patient go back. And I think it, there can be different uh, emotions or times that can go different ways. And I totally agree that, that that's the best approach and a great way to go. Um, you had talked about, um, towards the end of the article, um, kind of referring a dentist if there's just egregious treatment that is not, um, up to the standard of care. Um, and you talk about reporting to either the dental board or local peer review. Do you have a, a kind of a different approach or what scenarios do you, um, think about going that route? And have you ever had to report a, a fellow colleague to peer review? And what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that, that's a difficult situation uh, on all fronts. Um, I haven't had to refer um, uh, a patient 
uh, to peer review personally. Um, and at that point, sometimes it, it may be that we need uh, a prosthodontist or we need another specialist, maybe with occlusion, maybe with cosmetics, whatever the case may be. Uh, but fortunately, in all my years, I haven't had to report a dentist to the board uh, or per peer review. But there's, there's an answer should that case or that issue come about. You're, you're obligated to report that dentist. So moving on from the article a little bit, in regards to practicing ethically into the ADA code, what advice would you give to a recently graduated new dentist? Yeah, that's, um, Alex, you're full of great questions tonight. <laughs> um, yeah. I would say, number one, uh, know uh, your limitations uh, when, you, when you leave uh, residency or dental school or fellowship. Uh, know when, when you should do endo or is it beyond your scope. Know when you attempt an extraction, can, can you, you're able to remove the tooth uh, in such a way that it's not... Uh, four hours or three hours. Uh, know your limitations and, and know when you need to refer. So I would suggest uh, when you come out of practice, uh, reach out to the specialists, whether it's endo or perio or pathology, uh, certainly oral surgery, reach out to those colleagues in your, in your neighborhood. Uh, and, and should a case come up, call them up. They're always willing to give you advice yeah, we can do it, or no, maybe you should refer before you get involved in a patient in the office, uh, and now you don't know what to do at that point when you're in the middle of the case. So, um, yeah, whether you need extra training, extra courses, um, that's up to you. But the big part is know your limitations on uh, what you're comfortable with handling in, in the private office. I think that's a, a terrific point. And I know that um, as I've been going through practice, having those relationships and being able to call when there's a situation arises. And I know a number of my colleagues do the same all, all the time, depending where they're at in practice. And that makes a huge difference. Um, being able to pick up the phone at, um, and, and uh, having access is, is great. Yes, um, Alex, you know, yeah. patients are many on blood thinners. Mm -hmm. How do you handle a cleaning your hygienist with patients on Plavix or Xarelto or Eliquis. What about pre-medication? What happens? We did the cleaning. It's still bleeding. These issues happen every day. And right. uh, the, the, these, these are situations that you need to be prepared for. And if you have your colleagues in good friendship, they can, they can help you in, in every situation. So very important on that. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, what does being an ethical dentist mean to you and how does the ADA code affect your day-to-day -day practice of dentistry? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, um, Nanette Elster, uh, bioethics attorney for mm -hmm. ADA CEBJA Council, uh, learned a lot from her. And uh, one of her biggest or her most common phrases when you speak with her is, uh, from a quote from Potter Stewart, a Supreme Court justice. And, and he states that ethics is knowing the difference between what you have a right to do and what is right to do. Hmm. And I always like to add, 
when no one's looking, when no one's around you. And uh, so an ethical dentist is doing the right, what is right to do when no one's looking. It's almost like treating your aunt and your uncle, <laughs> your mother, your brother, your sister, right? Do, do we need to do this extraction? Can we do root canal? Do we need an extraction, do an implant? What is the long-term? And these are common sense questions that when you see a patient, and if you treat them like one of your own, then I think uh, that's the right thing to do. Uh, but the challenges is the challenges are for new dentists with with high student loan debt, with pressures of organized dentistry or or DSOs, dental service organizations. There's pressure to produce, and 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 it may make it feel uncomfortable at night when you go home. But at the end of the day, if you treat them like a family member, what would you do with your relative? Then I think uh, you'd sleep very well and have a long, lustrous uh, career. No, I. That, and that that's normally what I make how I make my decisions. Well, as well as just is this what's best for the patient, and and I'll be able to sleep tonight because I know that was the best option. And as an orthodontist, we see it all the time. If a patient comes in and is it the best time for them to start or they, they can they wait a little while? And that's, I think, so uh, such a, a great point and something to drive home that um, it, there can be other pressures, but um, it really comes back to what's best for the patient. And in the long run, you'll be so much further ahead. You're, I couldn't agree more. Now, Alex, um, you're right. You know, not every third molar needs to be extracted. <laughs> and, 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 many, and many parents, when they come in for consultation with their children, they come in and they say, okay, we made the appointment. I said, well, you know, maybe we, maybe we don't need to do it at this time, you know. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe the two need to come out, but the two are in a position. Maybe how about we let them, we wait and, and let's see in a year or two and see what happens with those positions. And many are dumbfounded because they expect that they're coming out. And uh, they leave the consultation with a different I would say mindset or interpretation for me, like, really? We, we don't need to, like, no, you don't really need to take them out at this time, whatever the case may be. And uh, they go home thinking, man, oh man, what, who is this, who is this doctor like? Okay, and, uh, and I think at the end of the day, they appreciate the honesty, the truthfulness, uh, and, and the care, like a relative, Alex, literally mm-hmm. like a relative. Uh, and they go back to their referring dentist and say, "Wow, man, this this surgeon is uh, we were we were pleasantly surprised. He gave us the truth instead of a you know make the appointment." Yeah, and that's like we keep saying, but that's if you can sleep at night, I think that's the the right approach, and you're always going to be in, in a better place at the end. Um, and just wrapping up, do you have any final thoughts to share about this article, or any thoughts in general for the audience? Uh, you know, Alex, patients are are loyal to a point. Back in the day, patients would be with you 10, 20, 30 years of their lifetime. Their children, their children's children would come to see you. You, 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 were, you were so trustworthy and they believed in you. And uh, But nowadays, you know, uh, and I bring up financially, right? Patients mm-hmm. change insurance, they move on. And, uh, and unfortunately, that's the case how it is nowadays. And they'll leave you 
despite your excellent care and treatment of their entire family for a different insurance. And um, what, what do you say? You know, what do you say on that? You say, hey, God bless. And uh, here are your records, right? You'd be upfront. And if you need us in any way in the future, come back and see us, right? Um, following the, this code of ethics and the five principles uh, will put your patients uh, in the right frame of mind and they will believe in you. Um, justifiable criticism is, is a major issue. And if we treat patients like we see it, explain the situation, reach out to the referring dentist, whoever they may be, and get a consult with them, explain the situation, and try to make, at the end of the day, what is best for the patient. I think if you follow that way, um, I think uh, you'll have a long and prosperous career. Oh, thank you so much. I, um, this has just been a, a great conversation and I appreciate you taking the time. And I know you're a, pro a prolific writer on Sebja and have a number of articles. So I would hope to do this again in the future. And thank you so much for joining us. And um, I know we'll be, be in touch here again soon. Alex, uh, grateful for the opportunity. Uh, wish you well and uh, thank you again. Thank you. A final note about the episode. Please see the show notes for a link to the original article and stay tuned for future episodes. At the close of the episode, continue listening to hear the sections of the ADA's Principles of Ethics and Code of Professional Conduct pertinent to the original Ethical Moment article. Thank you for keeping ethics at the forefront of the dental profession and join Sibja as we continue to solve dental dilemmas. This article discusses three sections of the ADA's Principles of Ethics and Code of Professional Conduct. These sections are as follows. 4C, Justifiable Criticism. Dentists shall be obliged to report to the appropriate reviewing agency as determined by the local component or constituent society instances of gross or continual faulty treatment by other dentists. Patients should be informed of their present dental health status without disparaging comments about prior services. Dentists issuing a public statement with respect to the profession shall have a reasonable basis to believe that the comments made are true. 4C1. Meaning of justifiable. Patients are dependent on the expertise of dentists to know their oral health status. Therefore, when informing a patient of the status of his or her oral health, the dentist shall exercise care that the comments made are truthful, informed, and justifiable. This should, if possible, involve consultation with the previous treating dentist in accordance with applicable law to determine under what circumstances and conditions the treatment was performed. A difference of opinion as to preferred treatment should not be communicated to the patient in a manner which would unjustly imply mistreatment. There will necessarily be cases where it would be difficult to determine whether the comments made are justifiable. Therefore, this section is phrased to address the discretion of dentists and advise against unknowingly or unjustifiably disparaging statements against another dentist. However, it should be noted where comments are made which are not supported and therefore unjustif unjustified, such comments can be the basis for the institution of a, dis a disciplinary proceeding against a dentist making such statements. Section 2, Non-Malfeasance or Do No Harm. The dentist has a duty to refrain from harming the patient. This principle expresses a concept that professionals have a duty to protect the patient from harm. Under this principle, 
The dentist's primary obligations include keeping knowledge and skills current, knowing one's own limitations, and when to refer to a specialist or other professional, and knowing when and under what circumstances delegation of patient care to auxiliaries is appropriate. Section 5, Veracity or Truthfulness. The dentist has a duty to communicate truthfully. This principle expresses the concept that professionals have a duty to be honest and trustworthy in their dealings with people. Under this principle, the dentist's primary obligations include respecting the position of trust inherent in the dentist-patient relationship, communicating truthfully and without deception, and maintaining intellectual integrity. Remember to keep ethics at the forefront of your daily practice, and stay tuned to Sibja Decode's Dental Dilemmas.